communication is so that not that you can be understood, but that you cannot be misunderstood. You know, communication is, is such that we don't want to be misunderstood. Hey guys, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve, your source for the most up-to-date coaching strategies for player and coaching development. I am Jonathan Gellner. Today's show features head coach and current host of the 1% Better podcast, Joe Ferraro. Joe and I discuss what it is like to start the culture at a school that isn't known for baseball, and to go along with that, he goes in depth about their culture playbook. You're going to love this conversation with Coach Joe Ferraro. Coach Ferraro, thanks for being on Ahead of the Curve. Oh, Jonathan, thank you so much, man. I couldn't be more honored to be here, man. Well, I am honored that you would come on. For our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about your story and why did you decide to get into coaching? Yeah, I feel like when you think about stories, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. But in terms of the way you frame the question, which is great, gets me thinking again. I got into coaching, the way you asked the question, it, to continue with this game. What a game, right? It's, it's this game where you're rewarded for being mentally tough. You're rewarded for thinking about the game and noticing things. And as I look back now, I think it was a natural progression. Actually, years, year, years and years later, I got criticized by my college coach for saying I wanted to be a coach when I was a player. And I don't know if you run into people like that. But, you know, as we coach, it doesn't, it doesn't always come so appreciative if you were making suggestions or you're pointing things out. But I wanted to continue in the game. And uh, getting into coaching was something that seemed natural. I thought I had something to add in terms of noticing or a voice. And as my playing career became more and more obvious that just like every coach says, I didn't have the most skill in the world. I wanted to stay in the game. Uh, how I got into it, it actually was a combination of being in the right place at the right time and luck and just great fortune. I had just graduated from Pace University at 21 years old and took on a full-time teaching job. Uh, I went back to the alumni game for Pace, and I just wanted to introduce myself to the new coach. And just in the terms of small talk, finding out that I wanted to stay in what I thought was high school coaching, he had said, did you know about the job opened at Manhattanville College, which was a small Division three school in Purchase, New York? And embarrassingly, I never heard of the college. And I said, well, I, I haven't heard of it. Uh, I don't know much about it, but I was looking to just get involved at the high school level to get started. One thing led to another, and I had an interview set up within a week at Manhattanville College. Uh, they were a struggling program at the time, and uh, I went in, and they hired me for the fall season. So before I had turned 21 in October, excuse me, 22 in October, I was the head coach at an NCAA Division three school. So extremely lucky, right place, right time, made a million mistakes, but that's the short version of that story. And so you've stayed in baseball ever since. Can you talk to us about the podcast that you and K-Dub started and then uh, where you're at today? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, the, the journey's been so fun, and, and, and at 39 now, um, I've made every mistake there is to make, I think, in the game. And trying to notice it and help people. That's why I love a podcast like this. I mean, seeing you work and your development, I feel like you and I are kindred spirits because we got the podcast, you know, KWB Radio, and uh, Kevin wasn't even sure what a podcast was when we started. And now, obviously, you got podcasts everywhere, some good, some bad, some ugly. But the ones we always seem to be attracted to are ones where we can share stories about learning, particularly about this game. And Kevin kind of gave me a, a chance to kind of get involved and rub elbows with baseball people like yourself. You know, let's be, let's be honest. I would have never got a chance to meet you, Tim Banos, Jeremy Sheetinger, Jack Warren, all the people have made great contributions in the podcast. And to now see what you're doing with ahead of the curve is just incredible. 
what we tried to do was a little bit different. We tried to tell stories um, with people who've been involved in the game. You know, full disclosure, I think I booked maybe two, three guests for KWB Radio and Kevin's connections and relationships drove the engine. So I was kind of the guy that noticed things and framed questions. He was, and you know, I mean this honestly, he was the talent and the, and the uh, networking behind it. And it was just amazing to hear his perspective on dealing with those kind of egos, level of play, major leaguers, think people I never would have met. And uh, we were happy and thrilled to do 40 episodes over the course of two or three seasons, just trying to figure it out as we go and tell great stories about the game. I love that. And so that segued into a head coaching job for you. Is that correct? Well, I was I was at Manhattanville for five years and my lifestyle was just insane going from teaching full time English to full time recruiting, full time fundraising, full time head coaching at the college level. And you probably know this, it's pretty difficult to start a family and get married and kind of keep that pace up. Um, Saturday doubleheader, Sunday doubleheader, and, and just also making mistakes along the way where you're just like, players are older than you and, and whatnot. So eventually, it was time to go to the high school level where I was teaching full time. So I was fortunate enough to start the seventh and eighth grade program there. I went all the way back down to kind of my roots and the fundamentals of coaching, started the seventh and eighth grade program for a few years. Uh, helped a group kind of move through the system at, at Valhalla, where I teach. And then um, they were lucky enough to win the, the state championship in 2010 under a great head coach in the varsity program. By that time, I had been become the JV coach. So two years ago uh, was, the, was the last year that I was uh, at Valhalla as a JV coach, 10 years there. And uh, these last two years, I've been a head varsity coach at Bronxville High School. So being the head coach at Bronxville... Uh, what does being a Bronxville Bronco look like? So just for instance, what do you guys stress to your players? What do you want your players to do? What do you want them, How do you want them to act? What do you want them to look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. I, I think one of the reasons, recently one of my uh, former players asked me a question about why I took that job, and it was kind of a beautiful question, and I think he meant it sincerely. And it's one of those moments where even though I hadn't coached the kid in two years, we had a heart-to-heart, and I told him about you know pursuing new challenges. The Valhalla varsity program's rolling along with a young, great coach. If I ever wanted to be a head coach at the varsity level again, it was going to have to be somewhere else other than where I teach. So one of the challenges was going to a place, and I always love the expression where, where they say, well, if it was a great job that you were taking over, they wouldn't need you. You know, I think Urban Meyer had that moment where he was taking over Bowling Green. And I, I feel the exact same way. You know, Bronxville baseball was not in a great place. If you listen to anyone, they'll tell you it's a lacrosse school. It's a world-class school, but they're just not interested in baseball. But now entering year three, we feel and we talk about the boulder has started to move. We've started to change the culture, and that, that word's everywhere. You, you know that word. I know that word. And But what does it mean at Bronxville? Well, what we tried to do is for the last 10 years at JV, we didn't talk about wins and losses, and we talked about core values. And rather than just you know pay at lip service, I, I leaned into it. So we went ahead and we, we anchored the program to four core values that we thought were both unique and, you know, also general enough where you can live a great life and kind of teach those life lessons through base. To be a Bronxville Bronco right now, we went into full on that culture playbook. We went into resilience. We went into communication. We went into focus and joy. And the looks on my players' faces when I unveiled that was priceless because it was not what they thought they had signed up for. You know, quite honestly, uh, a number of our players are recreational players, were and still are. And at first, you're like, oh, man, how am I going to build a program with this? And then as you mature and as you think about all your experiences, I, I think that we found a role for a lot of those guys. 
And uh, the communication piece of the core values has been vital because when you're trying to find a place for someone who's not playing summer ball, who's not playing uh, fall baseball, who may be playing another sport, or who may be on the chess team, uh, the crew team, we have, a, we have a squash player, we have people in all walks of life. And rather than be frustrated and say, you know, well, this is never going to work, we try to meet these kids where they are. And, uh, you know, the short answer to your question is, we hope that an identity is forming and, and what it means to be a Bronco. I mean, it's, it's not something that's been there forever. I will tell you that every sport appears to be rolling at Bronxville, right? But it's not that way. But it's just, it seems that way when you're on the outside. But they do have state championship caliber teams. They do have, uh, you know, a nation-recognized track team. But the reality is the baseball identity is still forming. So I, I, I'd be less than honest if I told you we had it all figured out. But those are the four pieces that we're trying to pillar down and kind of anchor a Bronxville Bronco too. And so how did you come up with those? Was it a uh, you and your coaching staff or was it you mentioned that the players were surprised. So I'm guessing that it didn't they didn't help come up with that. So how did you come up with those four things? It's, it's an interesting question because I still go back and forth on it. Right. We hear everything about the program is for the players. And then we as coaches uh, go ahead and make a lot of the decisions. So the only thing I can tell you is that we knew going into year two what some of the core values would be. And then we pulled the captains aside and we, we involved them in the process. And it was an interesting process because they, they seemed to be on board with it. But when we asked them for input, they would pick words that we thought were covered. So they would say something like determination or dedication. And we talked it through. And ultimately, you get to a point where resilience kind of covered what we were hoping to get out of that. And they've never been exposed to an approach like this. So it's not that they don't have something to offer, but we kind of leaned into what Brian Kite of the Focus 3 says, where it's the leaders who put the culture out there. You're going to be there longer than the players. And he didn't say that in a condescending way. You're trying to say, hey, this is the experience you're going to have if we do things right at Bronxville. So he kind of empowered me by by. One time I got a chance to see him speak and he empowered me by, by letting me know that it's okay for the leaders of the program to set that culture. And if something comes up along the way where there's a need and, you know, the players are going to let you know, especially when communication is one of our core values. But the, the bottom line, the, the answer to your question is my, my assistant and I set that culture. We involved the captains and we, we went forward with it. And, you know, I can't say it's perfect. There's a point where sometimes you want to add a word or subtract a word. But you're thinking about it and you're saying, how many can you really have before it gets to be too much? So we set the culture and the players have, I like how Brian Kite says it, it's, it's either they behave that way or they believe in it. We would rather have you believe in it. And we hope that your body language shows that you believe in it. But at the very minimum, this is how you'll, you'll be expected to behave in the program. And uh, it, it's kind of anchored it. No, and I think that's great. I think that you make a great point when saying that you're going to be there longer than the players. And 10 years from now, whenever they come back, they're still going to have the same core values. It should still look the same. So, no, I, I think that's a great take on that. Oh, good. Yeah, because it's, it's one of those things where you want to involve them. Then you're involving 20 young men from one team. And it's not necessarily, I mean, I don't know how you and I would have been at 13, 14 years old coming up with values that, you know, dictate the whole program. So I'm open to looking at it again. Um, to adding one, you know, when I look at them and, you know, as an English teacher, as a, as a, someone who loves podcasting, I'm very partial to, to the communication core value because that's the one to me is the, the easiest to translate on and off the field. You know, we love resilience and, and that was our book of the year. We can mention that a little later, but the communication piece is extremely tangible. It's like, here are three things that will make, 
uh, great communication off the field. And, you know, it's just something we literally kept going back to in every conversation. I said, well, if you looked at the culture playbook, is that, did you behave in a way that matched what we expected from communication? And they were like, no. Well, that's where we have the problem, right? If you would do what we said in bullet two, and it's funny, as I'm saying this, it's making it sound like a my way or highway program, which anyone who knows me is not my, my personality. But what it's done, though, is it allowed our, our difficult conversations to be rooted in something. My wife, who's taking some of her master's classes right now, she had a question that said, how do you define leadership? Which I don't think is a great question unless you're just wanting a broad synopsis of answers. But mm. I could say, you know, in one word, I said, leaders are communicators. You know, wow. that with everything else that, that they do, if they can't communicate the vision or if they don't communicate to you, then how are they, you know, leading the people? Then they're they're not going to have any followers. And without any followers, you can't be leaders. And so, no, communication is absolutely vital to any team, organization, or leaders. So, no, I, I love that part. Yeah, I'm so happy you picked up on that. And, I, and I, I love the freedom that that gives me when I can hear that. Give you a couple of quick snapshots of how that's played out in our program. Sure. Um, one of the things that we say in our, in our three behaviors for communication is to have difficult conversations in person. Mm. Difficult conversations in person. With all the texting and emailing that could go on, um, you often find as a coach, as soon as practice is over, you get that text or that group me message or whatever you're using from the player that says, oh, I forgot to tell you I won't be there tomorrow. Well, that doesn't fly in our program because we just said, hey, we have difficult conversations in person in our program. And uh, when they know that, there's just no place to hide. And, and the real truth of the matter is most of the adults you and I know in our lives, they don't have difficult conversations in person. So we're getting a very tangible way to change lives through that core value, which sounds a little bit hokey on the surface. Like, oh, of course, communication is, is uh, important. Well, two ways we look at it. One, have, have difficult conversations in person. And two, we try to define communication, which is just as broad and difficult as, as defining leadership. But when we thought about it, one of the definitions we came up with was communication is so that not that you can be understood, but that you cannot be misunderstood. You know, communication is, is such that we don't want to be misunderstood. And, and that involves tone. And a lot of times, you know, Jonathan, we'll find ourselves having a conversation with a student athlete and, and the conversation goes like this. Do you think that there's another way that the person could have understood that? Like, do you think that there's a possibility that you left the communication vague where they had to interpret what you meant? And they'll say yes. And you say, well, there's where the breakdown comes in. You're supposed to communicate in a way where there was no possible way that the other party, the umpire, your teammate could have possibly taken it the wrong way. And we have those conversations constantly. And it's, again, that's what the core value approach has done for, for us is we continue to go back to it. It's in our dugout. It's in their handbook. It's everywhere. And, and we've really leaned into it. And, and I, just, I just love that approach that I certainly didn't invent. Well, and I think it's good that you talked about having those conversations face-to-face -face because how often do we misinterpret an email or a text? Oh, my goodness, right? It's, it's, there's so much gray area. The good part is if, if there's no other way to have the conversation, now we can lean back on the way of, okay, well, now that we must communicate an email or handwritten notes, which is something we talk about in our program, now let's, let's communicate precisely in a way where it's crystal clear. That's the big word for me, too, in communication is clarity. And I certainly don't always master it. But to try to be clear, to not be misunderstood, to have difficult conversations in person, then we can start to get into the body language stuff and tone that I also love. So let's get into the meat of the conversation. This show was and, it, and is based on 
team development, player development. And so I'd like to go through what your program looks like throughout the year. So let's start in the off season and tell us when you guys can start and what you guys do. You know, it's a crazy statistic that's going to blow people's minds. And, and, and really, <laughs> I question it all the time. There, in New York State, you can start. There is no start date. There is no end date um, as long as school is in session and as long as it's optional. So where tryouts can't start till March, you can have voluntary workouts year round. So when I say that, I immediately start to question myself and say, oh, well, why aren't we doing, you know, 180 days a year baseball? But you then say, wait a second, we, we do believe in the multi-sport athlete. We do want them to have an experience away from the game. We do want to be in protocol with all the throwing and whatnot. But the answer is um, we, we start um, right after Thanksgiving break. So after Thanksgiving holiday comes in, we start getting together. Now, at a small school like Bronxville, a very, very high portion of our, well, 100% of our student athletes either play a second sport or are heavily involved in an extracurricular. That's just the kind of kid they are. And we lean into that. We love it. We had two kids uh, go to France last, uh, last uh, holiday break. We had two kids, th- excuse me, three kids go to Nicaragua to build houses for, for the underprivileged. And it's a very difficult conversation to have with them and say, hey, we need you for the winter workouts. Uh, we don't want you to go to Nicaragua. We don't want you to go to France on a school trip. So that that's just something that the first year, it was shocking. The second year, okay. The third year, now we build it in and celebrate it as part of our program. And with that comes pros and cons. So that's all a way of saying when we start in November, I'd love to sit here and tell everyone listening, we have 20 kids on the varsity, 15 on the on the seventh and eighth grade team, all coming and, and going. It's just not the case. But the answer to your question is, that's when we start opening the doors two days a week after after Thanksgiving, where we'll do a combination of weight work and throwing and hitting. We have an indoor cage, um, nothing crazy, nothing that would blow your mind. The facilities are great, but just a, a simple kind of a workmanlike effort. We go two days a week, quote unquote, optional, as we know. And then truly, like I said, at, at Bronxville, it is optional because they're into so many different things. And we take that right into right before the holiday break, where they'll have a little time off with their families. And then when they get back from there, we'll go three days a week. Um, this year is pretty special because we're gearing up for a southern trip to go to Florida. That's the first time that's happened in the program since I've been there. So uh, that'll take us into the, the season, into March, where we have tryouts. Now, tryouts at Bronxville, for me, has been a little different. We're, we're a two-level program right now. We have varsity and we have uh, what they call modify, which is seventh and eighth grade. We don't have enough numbers to have all three levels. So we've made a decision that makes the most sense to get the kids in as soon as possible, seventh and eighth. And then we've taken a very young varsity team for my two going on three years. Something that a lot of coaches talk about and they gripe about, about their kids not being very competitive. So how do you integrate competition uh, into practices? Yeah, it's such a great point. Now, it's interesting what you say, them not being competitive. I go the other way where I want to get better as a coach figuring out the balance, right? Because as I just got done saying to you, we're, we're very young. So with, with young and sometimes very, very inexperienced, now some coaches listening will not be able to relate to the kind of student athlete we have. I mean, whereas some coaches are, are working on the fine tuning things, there are times where we have first year uh, baseball players that we're also accepting, and this is going to sound crazy, into a varsity program. They're not normally the starters, obviously, but you are running into a situation where we're, we're building. I was, you know, talking with someone you know, at length about we started, the, we finished the season last year with an eighth grader on the mound, 
uh, a senior catcher because our freshman catcher was hurt, a freshman first baseman, freshman right fielder, freshman second baseman, sophomore shortstop, on and on and on. Our roster last year was nine freshmen, a sophomore, two seniors, and seven juniors. So that's a way of saying I don't have the, the, the recipe totally figured out when it comes to competition. What I did find interesting was during one of the rain kind of soaked days where we were forced to go inside in the middle of the spring where no one really wants to be there, Coach and I would develop uh, a competition day in the middle of the season, so to speak, and it would be a, a chance to kind of isolate competition. We would come up with a bunting game, a line drive game, an accuracy throw, a timed run, et cetera, et cetera, a few things. And what was fascinating about our kids, not only were they competitive, but they were checking the scores down to the, the decimal point. So we had a scoring system unveiled, and these kids are, are running over to the whiteboard and, and saying, you know, coach, did, did you look at this? Did you, did you do a tiebreaker in this fashion? So I don't know what it said. I mean, if I'm telling you, I think it might be that they're detail-oriented, that they, that they value fairness, that they want, to, they want to have a fair shot. I don't know, but it's, what I did love about it is what it revealed. So when, when I find, to answer your question, when you do competitions, uh, events like that, you kind of see what players run from it and what players run into it. And it's a very interesting thing. As I approach year three, uh, I actually have had a few people, uh, upperclassmen, say, hey, coach, can we do more competition? So it's something that I need to find a better balance between how do we do competition while we're still teaching the skills. Definitely. And I think that, like you said, they either run to it or run from it. And that's a way to find out how, who your guys are or just who your team leaders are. So is there anything that you do to develop team and leadership building? Well, you know, that's the thing, right? If we're not going to be uh, world-class in competition just yet, we're going to have to be world-class in something. We, we talk about being the best in the section at, at something and, and having those conversations. And we're, we've been one of the weaker programs to just getting started in terms of rebuilding. And well, we'll say, okay, how about anywhere? Can we start anywhere? Do we have the best uniforms? Do we have the best lineup card? Do we, take, do we wear our uniform the best? Do we have the best attitude? And we go from there. So team building is, is not something, unlike competition, where we'll, we'll infuse it. it. It kind of undergirds everything we do. So, you know, the way I look at team building and leadership from our program is kind of in two phases. One is teachable moments, and another one is direct lessons. So we'll, we'll take opportunities when they arise, just like any good teacher, I would hope. Anytime you have a chance to teach something about team building, we'll stop the action We'll point out an opponent. We'll see. We'll we'll show something on video, and we'll talk about a team building moment. But then you have to have the direct moments. We we did a few different things that we thought really helped last year. We had a book of the year. So in the summer, we gave in, We sent a I sent a long email to all the parents and support staff about kind of as you see in schools, one book, one one school. We did the same thing for our program. We chose uh, Resilience by Eric Greitens, and it fit in just exactly with what we wanted to do. I mean. That's a book. That, that's a Desert Island book for me. I mean, that, if I could throw a resource in the middle of the show, it, it's a book in chapters. If I know you, you've probably read it. It's, it's a book about a Navy SEAL writing to another Navy SEAL, and, and every chapter has a different name, leadership, teamwork, toughness. So you have everything covered there. So we'll talk about that. We'll do, I don't want to say book reports because I don't want to suck the love out of, out of the game, but something along those lines where kids are asked to find their favorite quote and things like that, and we can refer back to it. I'll throw some things at our team dinners. One of the things that I can't take credit for, but it's certainly a team building thing, is, is we had a weekly team dinner. Now, I don't know if that's uh, something that every listener has at their program, but one parent or sometimes a group of parents will take that on 
And once a week during the entire season, we'll have a team dinner. And we've developed those a little bit as we've gone, but those things are memorable. I mean, you have parents opening their homes to the team, getting banners made up, balloons on the driveway. Uh, one time, uh, we, this past year, we watched the Kentucky Derby as a team while the team dinner went on on a Saturday. So, I mean, I, I know it's, it's an old school thing where people are having the pasta dinner and whatnot, but these parents go out of their way to open up their homes. It's kind of an expected thing where I'll, I'll have the floor and talk a little bit, but sometimes we'll assign a captain to talk or an underclassman, whatever the case may be, and we'll have those team dinners. The third piece that I wanted to mention is we also added a charity component to the team this past year. A friend's charity came very close to our heart. It's called Believe in Bryn, B-R-Y-N-N. Great Facebook page and basically a, a couple out of the, the New Jersey, Philadelphia area. Uh, their daughter uh, was afflicted with Rett syndrome. Well, we adopted her as kind of an inspiration for the team. We made our fan day about her. I mean, she basically was living proof of resilience, joy, focus, and, you know, trying to communicate. And it just made an unbelievable uh, spine to the program, right? We can rally around her and talk about her and having the chance to open the Bronxville homes and hearts up to her. Those are three things that jump out as the year goes on. And, and you know, in the off season, you reflect about things you could have done and, and things you did and you forget a lot of things. But I would say overall, those are some of the things we're trying to do. Oh, I love it. And it sounds like that you're investing in the man, not just the baseball player. And I'm a firm believer in you build a better man, you build a better baseball player. So hats off to you guys for that. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. So take us through what you guys do in the spring. So you said you guys start or have tryouts in March. When does your season start and what does a typical week look like for you guys? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty quick turnaround, right? You start somewhere around the first or second week of March. You got a 12-day usually uh, tryout period. We usually give them a full week of, of tryouts indoors. We're not at a point now where there's a lot of reductions, but I've been in other places where it's extremely competitive in, 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 in that way. But we actually start a lot of the teaching stuff right away, try to do evaluation for two or three days, see where everyone kind of shakes down. And if we find we don't need a lot of reductions, then we go there. This year is an interesting challenge because we're planning, like I said, to go to, to Florida. So you got to do a little bit more of program vision with um, if we're going to take a large number, you got to get people involved in fundraising with the idea that in theory, they may not be on the team, um, which would be a hard conversation to have. But, you know, we're probably going to move forward with, you know, a roster of 20 or 22 this year. And uh, just having that open, again, the, the communication helps a lot. Being very open with, listen, your son is probably not going to play a lot. We're going to get him involved down in Florida, et cetera, et cetera. Here's his current role. Having the parents be mindful of the fact that since there's no junior varsity program, the experience that they're having this year is happening at the varsity level, which doesn't allow as much playing time, but it, it just exponentially allows them to grow as baseball players if, they're, if they act like sponges. So we move through the tryout period pretty quickly. You know, you get two scrimmages and, uh, and then you're ready to rock and roll. New York state law allows you to have 20 games, and I don't have to tell you how fast that goes. It's one of those things where the season's over before you blink. So you're talking about, you know, we, we practice or play six days a week, but you're looking at three to four games. Once you get going, goodness gracious, if it rains, you can be up to four or five games in a week in the New York area. And there's not a lot of time to then go back and have just incredible practices during the week. One of my big regrets, so to speak, is the fact that when you play that many games in a week, you want to do amazing things at practice, but you have health to worry about. You're talking about the amount of pitchers you use with the new pitch count rules and everything else, it, it forces you to be very creative at practice. 
when the weather is good, we have a beautiful field just off campus. And when I, and when I say just off campus, it's literally walking distance, but it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Or you're inside. You're inside in a basketball gym and you're making it work. So I don't think it's too uh, atraditional than other programs. We, we, we're very blessed with a lot of great facilities and we don't want for baseballs and, and nets and pitching machines and things that we have. A lot of programs have more and you know most have less. So it's, it's, we're very grateful for what we have. And you said it prior to this question. It's, it's leaning into the whole person. And it, it sounds so corny sometimes when you say it out loud. But then when you really believe it and you lean into it, it's amazing. And, it, and it's, it's shown dividends and you get kids reporting back on their, on their year-end profiles, like what, what the season meant to them. And it just, it, it comes to light. It's, it's just a very powerful thing. And when and if we get the program to where we're, we're winning games the way we want to be, I can only imagine how much of a powerful combination it could feel like for these kids. And so it sounds like throughout your time there, so this is starting year three, yeah. So how and it sounds like you guys have made a couple of changes. So how do you decide that what you're doing is working or that you need to change it? Yeah, when I think about that question, it's it's such a powerful question. I mean, I, I would love to ask that question if I was interviewing a teacher or a coach. You know, you really got me thinking with that. I think something that helps is that the way I, I try to live my life, I have a lot of weaknesses, but one of my strengths is, is noticing things. So I build that into a daily habit. Uh, I'll have a very daily habit all around me at all times, whether it's in the classroom or on the field, of noticing things. Some of my students will sometimes say, you know, Mr. Farrar, you're, you're overthinking this. And, I, and I'll smile and say, well, there is such a thing as underthinking it as well. And they don't usually hear that too often and don't always enjoy that response. But what I mean by that is I'm in, I'm in 365 degree. Let's notice. Let's see how this is working mode. I think the next piece of the puzzle is taking great notes and really leaning into your assistant. You know, um, and, and by the way, also some players, you know, you have you have those guys in your team. I don't think it's healthy to ask all 20 guys every day. But if you pull one specific guy over privately on one specific matter that, you know, he's keen on now, you could say, hey, does that, you know, Brian, did that make sense? What I said earlier today, can you repeat back to me what you think I was trying to do with that? And obviously that conversation is different than the one you'll have with your assistant where the, you look at the assistant sometimes and just say, what am I missing here? What could, what could I be doing better? So I guess now that I'm talking this question through, I'll say this way to frame it for people. I'll say, number one, building a lifestyle of noticing things. And number two, asking the right question, right? If you ask the right question, like you did here, you get, you get some great answers and you can get from your assistant, hey, what would you do differently? If Sometimes I'll joke with them and I'll say, you know, if I got hit by a Snapple truck and couldn't make the game tomorrow, who would you start at shortstop? And I'll laugh. I'll say, that's a very morbid question. But uh, I would start Jimmy or whatever. Oh, you would? Wow. Okay. You know, it could be something much, much more nuanced than that. Hey, if you're a head coach tomorrow, who are you Who are you pitching tomorrow? And I always try to frame the question in a way where he has the absolute freedom to answer it because you know how that relationship is with an assistant and we've all been the assistant as well. You're, you're saying, is he going to feel comfortable answering it? So I think one of the things I try to do is I try to free myself up and, and allow my assistant to answer it honestly by injecting either a little humor or a little perspective. I said, Imagine if I fired you if you didn't tell me the truth. Who should be back in third tomorrow? And I just, I'll continually ask questions like that. And it just loosens it up because, I don't know, when I was an assistant, it's kind of like, does the coach really want the answer here? And any way that I can frame the question to make it crystal clear that I do want the answer? And it's kind of like a lawyer, right? You don't ask a question you don't want the answer to. I do live by that, right? So if I know I'm going to be too sensitive or if I'm completely married to one answer, I'm not asking the question. I'm not going to waste his time. Um, I always use the example like, 
if your wife, girlfriend, or partner got a haircut and asks you how it looks, you got to say good. It's a must-lie situation. But if he or she says, hey, I'm thinking of getting my haircut, what do you think? Now they actually want an answer. So that's how I approach it with my assistant. If I want an answer, I'm asking. If I don't, I'm not. So what's the latest thing that you've learned that you're really excited about? That's a good one. I mean, I've, I can say that one of the things that um, I'm still experimenting with that excites me is coaching first base. Um, I'm the head coach, and I coached first base this past year. And I went ahead and did it in the summer as well to kind of practice it. And uh, it's a strange thing for the opposing coaches. I don't know. This is something, too, that I, I, I should mention. I wonder if people listening have this same thing where the coaches that you coach against never have any questions for you. I don't know if that means you're doing it right or wrong, but I have 100 questions for everybody I'm coaching against. And uh, sometimes I find that they don't have questions for me. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> I, I would love to talk to them. Maybe they know I'm going to talk their ear off. Or maybe they're just, you know, quite honestly, I think they're after different things, right? You, you know, it's very clear we're going after life lessons. And we can't look each other in the eye and say, everybody's doing that. You know, sometimes they're just out to get the W. And maybe that's right for where they're at as a program. I don't know what goes on behind closed doors. But to make a long story short, one of the coaches in the league asked me why I coached first. And we had a long discussion about it. So uh, the short answer, and I've written about this in different places, but the short answer is that it allows us to kind of get the running game going in a different way at first. We use verbal signs, which kind of expedites the process, also adds to the communication piece. And then the other thing that really, really good, I can't take credit for it, but it's, it's a Jason Riles from, from Georgia thing. You get to meet your, your hitter a lot earlier, a lot, of, lot sooner. So kid hits a single or a kid gets sawed off and he beats out an infield single, you're talking to him in between pitches or right when he gets there instead of maybe he never even reaches third and now he's back out at third base and you don't get to talk to him. So you lose that. So I'm going to answer your question by saying, you know, the idea that the head coach coaches first with the assistant that you really trust at third is something that's been kind of cool that that was not my own idea. And I've liked the results that it's been. Yeah, I actually read your article. I think was it in uh, Inside Pitch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was very lucky. They they had I had a great idea come to me through Jason, and then uh, I put it to paper, and it kind of came out all right. So I read that, and I think that day I switched with my assistant coach, and so I coached third for the JV games before the varsity games, and I was like, well, we have the first base dugout, and that would allow me to get guys in and out quicker so i'm gonna try it today so i tried wow. it. wow i was like wow you know that, that actually made a lot of sense since we were the away team we had the first base dugout so i tried it it's definitely a different world but isn't it I, yeah it is but i also felt like it was giving the assistant some ownership he felt like he was more involved rather than just standing over at first base you know not giving signals or anything you know that's a big job so it, it also is. allowed him him some freedom to uh you know mix it up over there too and then it gives you that one layer more of of coaching it which is when he makes a mistake, as, in, as he inevitably will, because we will as well, he doesn't send somebody or he doesn't do enough to, to make sure somebody goes back and tags. You can't just light him up on the field. I mean, he's another grown man. He's out there. He's working for peanuts, trying to make the program better, um, getting no glory and all the work. And, uh, and I think it makes me a better coach to say, OK, now how am I going to communicate with another professional in a way where I tell him that I wish he did it a little differently? Or maybe I don't say anything this time and let him grow. And, and I think that layer that it added was pretty cool. Obviously, um, you know, it's, it's part of the professional development piece. But, you know, what's even better is, is the fact that you tried it. I mean, you, you inspire me, man, with the, the amount of learning you tried to do and, and just with this podcast and just kind of reaching out to the people you've had on. It's, it's awesome to watch. 
Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Just trying to get uh, 1% better, shall we say. <laughs> There's my man. So on the flip side of that question, I want to know something that you once thought was true, but you might be recently or just recent changed your mind about. The answer to that question is kind of an evolution for me, which is the idea that, and I don't know how you feel about this, but it's the idea of the head coach ought not or cannot, I'm not sure what the right wording is, be the, the energy creator all of the time. You know, I, I have the ability to be an energy giver. I have the ability to be kind of a, a hurricane if I need to be. I, I think looking back on my playing career, I think I played baseball like a fo- with a football mentality. I really do. And I've sometimes run away from that and sometimes run toward it. I'll give you an example. On the way to games this year, um, in the beginning of the season, the past season, I was listening to uh, you know either a motivational song or something that I would have listened to in my playing days, uh, or sometimes even like a, a Ray Lewis speech to Stanford, which I love, something to get me juiced for the game. I would say within seven games of the season, I was listening to Jack Johnson. I was listening to instrumental music. I was trying to take the energy away because I was legitimately, and this is going to sound embarrassing, but I was legitimately too excited for the game. I was more excited than the players at times, and I felt that that wasn't healthy. And so the the energy responsibility is something that I've really kind of changed my mind on. Um, And it's sad because you watch it sometimes and you're thinking, if I don't supply the energy, the energy might not be there. But that fake forced energy also doesn't work. And I think a cousin of that I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but especially with an inexperienced team, which we, which we have, when you yell either at an official, which is very rare, I'm happy to say, or you're just screaming for some reason, they do not do well. I used to think, we all read that, in the, you would watch Major League Baseball. The umpire, uh, the coach would get thrown out to fire up the team. Well, the more I've done it experientially and the more I've read about it, it find, you find that young teams go into a shell, even if you're yelling at someone not in the team. I don't know if you've experienced that, but that's something I've completely tried to change and completely be the calm guy. I actually joke with my assistant. I say, you know, I'm going to have to be calm Joe today because they don't do well with intense Joe. And that's something that I've tried to find the balance of that as well. I'm naturally very mellow, like a mellow guy. I, I get excited. And then especially the umpire thing, you know, and I heard a quote and I, this is not my quote. I heard it and, you know, I can't take credit for it, but for guys that are consistently on the umpire, I'll, I'll go out there just to, so I can have their back so they know that, yeah, it's a terrible call, and, and then you'll come back and say, hey, what'd they say, what'd they say? And I'll say, you know, are we that bad that we need every single call to go our way and <laughs> and win? Are we that bad? And then I'll go, well, no, well, no, we're not. And I said, well, then don't worry about it. You know, the guys that whine the entire game, it's just they're showing that they're true colors with that. Yeah, you, you know what, you, you, you hit the nail on the head, but you know what's funny? We have been that bad in the past. And, and the reality is, and I don't say that li- lightly, you know it when you take over a program where you're not as experienced. You know deep down from your experience, you are going to need that call. But what, what really comes out in the maturity, and I'm, I'm proud to say I kind of got to this point, which you know it should be something you get to, but I, I knew we needed the call, and I still didn't argue it. That was when I really reached the level I was proud of where it's like, Yep. If I was being totally honest, we need that call. But guess what? I can't let them. So I take the exact same way that you took it, even though I was technically lying to them, right? Because we do need that call to win this game. But the reality is down the line, if we're going to be true to what we're trying to build, 
that call is not going to make or break the program. It is going to maybe hurt us in this game, but I won't even say that to them. I'll just say, hey, that's not something we're going to worry about today. Oh, I love that. And so what are some of your favorite resources? You mentioned the resilience book earlier. What else do you go to? Well, you, you and I have had off-air conversations about books. You're constantly recommending books. I, I was telling my students recently, and, and, and I think everyone can benefit from this. If you're not a reader, you pick one book. You find one book. You find that one book that you like, and it could be even a podcast or it could be um, some a TED Talk. That's even a great place for people, right? And then from that TED Talk, let's say it's an Adam Grant TED Talk, which I'm high on, or a Tim Urban TED Talk away from the game. And then you say, oh, who does Tim Urban write blurbs for in his book? Or who does Tim Urban mention in his blog? And then you go to Seth Godin. Seth Godin recommends, uh, you know, Brene Brown. And Brene Brown mentions, uh, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert. And Elizabeth Gilbert mentions, and these are all people that, that I aspire to talk to on my podcast and certainly people I read and get inspiration from. So the Rather than give you one resource, I'm going to say that, I don't, I don't know what it's called, but I'm going to call it the domino theory of learning, where you're, you're basically connecting things, where you find one true book that you like, one true author. And I, I, I recommend that with films. People say, I don't know how to find a good film. Well, go by director. Don't, buy, don't go by the plot. You go by the author, and you read everything one person. You know you know my, my affinity for Seth, and, and, and I mean, I read everything he has, and I know you read a lot of it, and then you just kind of go from there and see what he's noticing. And I don't know if there's a better tool than Twitter for it. I really don't. I know you use Twitter, and, and it doesn't sound like uh, the, you know, the sexy answer to say, oh, Twitter's a great resource. But I'm sure you meet teachers that don't have Twitter, don't get Twitter. And, and what I get about Twitter is the fact that if you approach Twitter as a reading list, you don't need another reading list. I mean, it's unbelievable. If you follow the right people and then unfollow the people that are taking your mental energy away, I think... I can't imagine someone listening to this podcast isn't on Twitter. But let's say you you weren't and you were you're hesitant. Don't follow. Uh, don't don't post. Just make yourself a pledge. You're not going to post, and you're only going to use Twitter as a reading source. And I think that that'll really open up doors for you. One of the last things before you go, you know, I have the aspirations of being a head coach someday, and I know that there are listeners who do as well. So, and you can answer this uh, with two parts since you've had two head, different head coaching jobs and really, what did you say, two decades almost. Yeah. So what do you wish you had known before you took your first head coaching job? And you could go either your college one or your high school or both. Well, I'm, I'm still learning it now. And I think that's the lifelong learner in me and all of us. You know, if you're going to be in this profession, you got to be addicted to learning. And I know you are. I'm going to try to just say some words that, that, that have to do with it, which is patience, uh, relationships, slow down. It's not the end of the world. You know, when, when I mentioned the resources, you know, I think it's almost a, a given that Kevin Wilson has been one of my, my big resources because he is the, the balancer, right, in our, in our friendship where he gets to see some Bronxville games, but he gets to see him from text or he gets to see him wherever in addition to being there. And he kind of reminds me of what I want to recommend to everybody, which is if you were going for a head coaching job, the idea is to completely double down, triple down on relationship building. There's no doubt. You know, you talk about trust. They, they want someone that can give them a clear vision, but they won't trust you unless it's clear. You know, or, or I guess it could work both ways, right? They won't, they won't even care if it's clear if they don't trust you. When I was first starting out, and I, again, getting back to that idea at the top of the show where if it was a great job, they wouldn't be hiring someone. Well, you're trying to change a culture, and when you when you do that, you want these momentum, you want these quantum leaps, 
And the problem with that is you can get them quickly, but you have to cut some corners. And when I was younger, I, I cut those corners by recruiting anybody who I thought was a good athlete and could help the program immediately. And, you know, you don't, you don't have the patience to be pickier and say, oh, I, I need my kind of kid. For one, I'm 21 years old. I don't even know what my kind of kid is, right? I might be attracted to a fiery kid who might not be good for the program down the line. But it's that relationship building. It's that five-minute conversation after practice. It's the sitting a kid down for principal. It's all of those things. It's, it's, it's the answer to the question is, is kind of a theme, which is slow down. A quote that I've been obsessed with re- recently is the idea that progress and speed have nothing to do with one another, right? You're trying to make progress. You're not trying to be speedy, although it's so hard to do. So when we said we moved the boulder at Bronxville in year two, we do not have the boulder rolling down the hill, but the, the progress now is a little bit of steady, slow budging the boulder. So what do I wish I knew? Even though it's paradoxical, you have to slow down. Uh, you have to make one decision after the other and, and double down, triple down on relationship building. Oh, I love that, and that is fantastic. So the last question I have before you go, it's kind of a tough question. But how does Coach Ferraro bring out the best in his players? Well, I hope I do. I think if I do, if I have success in that, it's by first identifying, okay, first it's building the the relationship. Is there a relationship? Is it a transactional relationship where you roll out the balls, just kind of get to have a baseball experience, or is it a relationship that actually exists? So once that relationship exists, it's building that trust. It's telling them and showing them that you have the experience, that you see something in them, that they don't see in themselves. You've coached a player like this before. You know, you've seen, you know, name your name your favorite player. If you've coached as long as some of us have been lucky enough to do, he fits into a mold. Now you're not cookie cutting him, but you know he's similar to this kid if he does everything right. So you've seen that kid before and you see something that he could achieve that he's not even aware of. So you let him know that you see that, you give him some ideas of some steps, you see if it aligns with what he wants to be, and then if you, whether or not your value is core, whether or not your core value is communication, you continue to have a communication with them where you try to bridge that gap between what you see he could become and what he is doing on a daily basis. That do his goals align with your goals and do his goals align with his work ethic. So that's how I approach it. It's, it's the whole game. You ask the question that basically is the whole idea of player development. So it's impossible to be positive that you're, you're doing it or that I'm doing it. But that's how I try to do it. I try to paint a picture, leadership being influence and leadership being a place where you see some place that he, he doesn't know he can get there yet and trying to get them there. So it's such a fun question to think about. Coach Ferraro, that is a fantastic answer. And I know there are some people who would love to get in touch with you after the show. So where can we find you online in case anyone wants to get in touch with you? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different places, and I'm, I'm more than happy to in, in, you know, continue the conversation. I, I'm not a guy that's bothered by emails. I'm not a guy that's bothered by any of that. I love it because I get a chance to learn. Um, I'm at Ferraro on air on Twitter, F-E-R-R-A-R-O on air. It's a great place. You can email me at uh, Ferraro on air at gmail.com. The Bronxville baseball Twitter is coming along nicely, so that's at BXV baseball. You can find that and find our our chronicled uh, journey, so to speak. But, you know, I'm sure in the show notes, they can reach out to you. Feel free to pass anyone along because if anyone's listening to this and, and gets anything out of it, I'm touched. I mean, I, I still 
get a huge kick out of you know helping anyone in any way. So those are great places to reach me. But I, I'm I'm definitely uh, if I don't return your email within 48 hours, uh, I'm doing something wrong. Maybe send me another one because I am trying to be pretty prompt about that. Is there anything else you'd like to add before you go today? Well, you know, the podcast game that I've been shifting and kind of maneuvering about and doing different things with is my 1% Better Project. You know, I'm really excited about where we're at with that. I'm taking a lot of inspiration from what you're doing and then pushing it to another degree outside of the world of baseball even further, where I I have kind of authors, thinkers, uh, speakers, and some baseball coaches, because that's my my bread and butter. But if you're going to be a baseball coach on the show, you got to be involved in in education. You got to be involved in something else and, and things like that. You know, you get commitments from big names like Dan Pink, and people always ask, well, how'd you get him on the show? And a lot of times it's the same way you get me on the show. You, you email me, and I'm certainly a lot more open than Dan, but, you know, you and I have read so much that you could find out a way to get in touch with these guys in a way that makes sense for them. Bottom line being, we're so lucky to be able to start a podcast and try to talk to some of our heroes, whether it's uh, people that have done it in the uh, the writing game, the coaching game, the teaching game like you. I mean, it's a fantastic thing that that... I don't know, you know, when you when you say humility, right, you, you, you see what these people are doing and, and you're like, oh, I would love to be there someday. The reality is they're just moving forward just like you and I. And, it, and it's an exciting thing to talk to them and trying to find out what area we can help someone get 1% better in. And, and that's kind of been the, the thrust of the project. I have a lot of different ideas as we go forward. Um, my wife's been incredibly supportive. So I'm trying to make sure we're fair to her along the way as we <laughs> do Bronxville, as we do Valhalla English teaching, as we do public speaking, as we do the 1% Better Project. I'm a, I'm a busy man just like you are, but it's just things that, that light you up and hopefully can help some people. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. I would love to get in contact with you to hear your thoughts on the podcast. There are two easy ways to do that. You can email me at jgelner7 at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at AOTC underscore podcast. Also, do you like to share ideas and have conversations with other baseball coaches? Just go to Facebook.com and search Ahead of the Curve Coaches to join our group. It's free, so what have you got to lose? If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating so others can find the show. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.